Welcome fellow pilots and other podcast listeners to another episode of the Alaska Pilots Podcast. I'm your host, Strategic Communications Chairman, Captain David Campbell. I've got a little bit of a programming note that perhaps our listeners can help us with. I, I've heard that some of our pilots have, are having a hard time finding the podcast. Uh, obviously, all of those of you listening know where to go. But you can help out your fellow pilots by telling them where to go. And, and the name of this podcast is the Alaska Pilots Podcast. So you can go to any of the services that host podcast and just type in that name and it should pop up. It should be the first one that pops up if you type in the whole thing. Um, even if all you can remember is Alaska Pilots, you'll it'll probably be in the list that, that pops up. But to make it even a little more easy, what I'm going to do from here on out is all of our emails, I'll have an icon on the bottom that will link you to where our podcast is hosted specifically, which is the Podbean program. And so if you're flying with someone who doesn't know where to go, just tell them to go to your email, look up whatever the last thing the union sent, and there'll be a link in the document. So hopefully that'll help people get get hooked up with the podcast. The other thing is for TextCaster, there've been a, a there's a couple of technical glitches that are going on. So if you're having trouble getting connected with TextCaster or fly with someone who is, send me an email at david.campbell@alpa.org and I will get you connected with someone who can help with that. Today, I've got with me Garen Tinchert and Will McQuillan. So it's been another week as we get through the COVID-19 epidemic, and we have a lot to say about that in the future. We've done a lot of work over the last week that we want to share with you. Before we do that, I want to make a, a special note that the amendment date of the collective bargaining agreement for the Alaska pilots passed this week, April 1st, and I want everyone to know that even in the midst of the work we're doing to deal with the pandemic, we haven't lost sight of the fact that our contract amendable date has passed. Those bargaining sessions, or at least the, the bargaining for improvements to our contract has not concluded. And the status quo period for our current contract remains in effect. And what that means significantly is that the contract, every part of the contract remains in effect and is enforceable. So we will abide by the contract, and of course, we expect management to do the same. We'll have more to say about the contract and some of the MOUs later on in the podcast, but I just wanted to recognize that that has passed and that uh, you know, we're still aware of it. That is still a goal of this MEC is to make the um, improvements to the contract that we have all earned. Well, first of all, Will and Garen, thank you for joining me today under these um, slightly difficult circumstances. Thanks, David. Thank you, David. So I would say a little bit of the chaos of, of the pandemic, at least from our perspective, is subsiding a little bit. And so that's given us a, a little bit more time and energy to focus on some broader topics. Will, you want to speak to that? Yep. Thank you, David. It has indeed been a little bit less of a chaotic week. And uh, so I think that there's a handful of things that are on everybody's mind, and we should uh, probably try to get through as many of those as we can. Um, I do want to start the conversation, though, by reminding everybody about the environment that we are operating in. It is still an environment in which what we don't know is still much greater than what we do know. 
at least as far as the future goes. And so, again, I'm going to reiterate that our intent is to focus on that which is known. Uh, we still don't know where the bottom is as far as the the fallout from travel and where the bottom of the pandemic uh, will hit. And we don't know what the demand curve looks like coming back uh, out the backside of this pandemic, unfortunately. Well, and, you know, speaking of the things that we don't know, I, let's address what we've been hearing out there in the world from uh, some of our base chief pilots, some of the web boards. I mean, there's a lot of speculation about the future. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I, obviously the furlough threats and the um, trying to posture about what the, the future brings, and, and I'll just call it what it is, some of the fear mongering that we've seen and heard out here in the last week is troubling. Um, you know, it is true that we've begun to see analysts make statements uh, and certainly management too this last week that the industry could look very different and potentially look smaller after after this summer, uh, after we start the recovery. And while that's possible, it's not known. Uh, last week in particular, we had statements made by management projecting this exact narrative that generated a lot of uh, excitement. Uh, management stating as if it is known to be fact how many airplanes smaller Alaska would be after the summer. And then pilots, of course, uh, turned immediately to extrapolating that into the number of uh, potential pilots that we would not need. Um, and I do want to make something kind of clear is that good decisions are not made. They're never made when the future is unknown and good decisions are not made in a fear-based environment. And I think the point to really stress is that we we just don't know what the future will hold. And so it's difficult to make those uh, sweeping predictions about what will happen. And so when you hear them, take that with a grain of salt. Yeah, and, and it's true. I mean, I'm not going to, to lie, of course, that we could indeed be a smaller airline coming out of this. But again, what that translates to in terms of furlough threat depends upon a large number of things. Not the least of which is the success of mitigation tactics that, uh, you know, we're either negotiating will uh, put into play before a furlough was ever to actually happen. And uh, that the demand curve, again, would have to be severely depressed coming out the backside of the, the pandemic for a long time. They would have to not need pilots for a protracted period of time before a furlough would make sense. So, again, it seems like we say it each week, but we're a long ways away from, from knowing the future or having a, a number when it comes to that threat. Last week, we did have statements by mid-level management projecting this kind of exact stuff, saying that Alaska would be smaller than today and even citing a certain number of airframes that would not be returned to service. Um, you know, that is their number. You know, I took my concerns over those statements all the way to very senior management. And uh, as soon as they were made known, uh, they were corrected immediately. And I guess the point is that real senior management, as opposed to mid-level management, to whom this quote was attributed, uh, have reiterated a couple of things to me and are going to be on record as far as this goes. Um, they want to do everything they can to avoid a furlough. And they need to see very protracted demand fall off for a furlough to make sense. And they did agree, of course, that it is way too soon to be throwing numbers around about what uh, a reduction in force might look like. Yeah, that's certainly true. And I think as evidence for that, you can look at what's happened over the last three weeks or so where 
we heard, uh, particularly from kind of the mid-level management, projections about what the drawdown of flying would be. And at first, it was 10 to 15 percent. Shortly thereafter, they were predicting 30 percent. And then, as everybody knows, it dropped to 70 percent. And that occurred in, in just about the span of three weeks. So predictions that are saying what's going to happen in September, October, or a year from now are just, I mean, to say it's a wag is is being generous. It, it's just crystal ball speculation. Yeah, there are certain known touch points that we have to identify um, coming out of this in terms of where the bottom is and then advanced bookings in terms of what the recovery looks like. And they're, they're still not known. I feel like we say this every week, but those things are not known. And uh, I would encourage everybody to focus on what we do know and the things that we do have control over rather than uh, in engage in, you know, guessing or worrying about what uh, what things we don't know. You know, and, and David, as you kind of hinted in this time of uncertainty too, one of the uh, the things that we have to deal with on a regular basis is rumor control. And I know that the, the reps are routinely confronted with the latest hot daily rumor. And then we also see it, you know, in the office and it does, it takes a lot of bandwidth and time away from, uh, you know, the things that are important to the pilots in order just to put down these sporadic rumors. Uh, maybe you want to add a little bit of color to that, what we've seen in this last week. Well, yeah, I, you know, rumors are really interesting to me because uh, as a communication chairman for so long, and, and I'm, I'm sure this, you've seen this, Garen and, and Will, to, to have access to knowledge about what is actually occurring and then to hear the rumor that's related around to it, it it's really fascinating to me how a group of very smart, intelligent people can be susceptible to rumors. And I actually wrote about this back uh, when I was a communication chairman before about the anatomy of a rumor. And there's some commonalities that, that you'll see in any rumor. One of them is there's often either some truth or something that's very plausible. And it comes from a source of either authority or perceived authority. And that can come in a, a number of forms. You know, just someone who has a lot of seniority um, is a credible source, even if what they're saying may not be credible, but, but at least the source seems credible. Uh, captains have that. Uh, management has that. There's a lot of ways that makes that information seem like, yeah, that, that's probably correct. But uh, I think it's it's really important to combat what you hear and, and think really clearly about what do you know and, and what do you not know or what are you assuming? Um, you know, a good example is I've been, my son is a teenager now. We've been playing uh, Mastermind a lot, which is that game where you pick a row of colored pegs and try to figure out what the sequence is. And so I've, I've been having this conversation with him where he'll be pretty certain that, you know, say the blue peg is correct. And I'll say, do you know that's correct or, or do you think it's correct? And then work backwards and prove to me, show me how you know that that's correct. And I, I think when you get information coming at you, you should take that same approach. Uh, a little bit like we do in the cockpit, actually, you know, cross-check your instruments. Make sure that um, if, you know, if the VSI is showing you a climb and the altitude isn't moving, something's not right there. And I, I think take that approach to the information that you're hearing, especially right now where a lot of information is coming at you from various levels of credible sources. Yeah, I, I 
agree with that. Uh, there seems to be a lot of people out there in social media or just in general uh, portraying themselves as the I know something crowd. And that plays on the fear and the uncertainty and the, the lack of knowledge that we do have about some things in the future. You, you talked about that cross-check your instruments. So there's one rumor out there that there's a, a massive downgrade uh, bid that was imminent that uh, we were somehow going to put to save costs everybody back into the right seat through the summer. And that's one of those situations where if people were to open up their contract and kind of think that through, that would require not just one system bid to downgrade a bunch of people, but also another bid to bring everybody back to the proper staffing. And we're a two-aircraft fleet now, which would require extensive cross-training costs, SIM costs, time. And none of those things fit when you cross-check your instruments. And just to be fair, too, I, of course, ran that uh, rumor up the flagpole and it was uh, laughed at. So uh, even management gives it no credence. Well, one that I've heard a few times is that Alaska is going to walk away from the stimulus money. Well, I think obviously we've always held them to what they've put out on Alaska's world and what they've said in public facing uh, arenas. They've gotten up and in front of people um, and said repeatedly that they intend to take the uh, the grants and take advantage of the stimulus money. But even as those rumors were flourishing, the same day there were posts being made to Alaska's world saying that they intended to take it. Um, again, though, you know, we cross-checked that and we were in negotiations at the time and actually had the uh, had Shane Tackett right there in the room to ask him and reiterate those statements. So it's that that lack of cross-check. It just it seems like uh, people want to again, it's a fear based reaction. You, you know, it's it's salacious. It's exciting. It, it It's a it's something that gets people worked up. Um, I received uh, in and around this downgrade bid like in a matter of an hour, a whole bunch of texts and emails from people who were freaked out because they perceived that whoever was throwing this around in social media uh, spoke from a position of power and truth. And I would just caution everybody to please, please focus on what we know, not what we don't know. And, you know, stick to credible sources for your information. We will happily make sure that what we're providing you is the most up-to-date, accurate information we can. Well, you mentioned the stimulus bill and that latest rumor. Let's let's turn our conversation to the the stimulus bill and what's been going on this week. Okay, yes, certainly. We can update uh, the pilots on what we know a week later uh, from what we had on last week's podcast. Uh, and information that I'm relating to you comes largely from a conversation with Shane Tackett about four or five hours ago. Um, just to reiterate, Alaska has indeed... Uh, applied for the grants. They have not at this time applied for the loans, but there's a couple of reasons for that. The uh, The application window for the loans has yet to even be set, so it's more logistics. Um, and then the current rules preclude Alaska from access to the loans under the CARES Act because they require that a carrier have no access to the capital market, um, which we and almost uh, all other airlines currently do. Uh, and so that's why you saw this petition that went out, uh, I think it was on Thursday night, but maybe it was throughout Friday, to make the loans available, more broadly available, based on need and by allocation by uh, airline seat miles, by ASMs. And that was a, a joint A for A uh, goal that they were seeking. Uh, until the guidelines are set, we really won't know for sure on this loan issue. But if the terms of the loans are favorable, then uh, we will seek them is is what I have by all indications. 
Well, if the grants are meant to cover payroll and benefits, and why are we seeing the company working on cost-saving measures? Well, it's a good question. A lot of the the cost-saving measures, of course, I think started um, to preserve cash in advance of the CARES Act ratification. But um, there, there's a couple of real basic um, reasons that underlie that. The total industry payroll, now that they've kind of had a chance to sharpen their pencil and take a look at it, uh, that would be eligible under the, the grants is $31 billion for the airlines involved versus, as uh, we know, the, the CARES Act provisions only $25 billion for, um, for payroll for that exact same period based on its Q2 snapshot of last year's payroll. And so each airline is going to receive a, a pro rata share that's going to be somewhat less than would cover full payroll. And as I said, we are seeing that uh, that same concern and those same kind of cost-cutting measures being played out across all airlines for the exact same reasons. Could they apply any of that money to operating costs other than payroll? The way that the uh, the bill is structured, it has to be used for payroll and benefits. And that was a key concern of ALPA that they couldn't pocket the excess grant money. In other words, have, uh, you know, these um, strong cost-saving measures and payroll-saving measures, and then I'll take the windfall and put it into towards operating costs. Um, we believe that to be the case. And if that does become a reality where there's excess money left over due to some of these cost-saving measures, then it's uh, ALPA's intent to lobby that those savings translate into more guaranteed payroll Downline, in other words, additional time of furlough protection. So, speaking of cost-saving measures, there you know there may be some that are preferable to airline pilots, and I know there's been some talk about early out for maybe some of the senior pilots. Is there any appetite for that, as far as you know, from management? Yes, there there is. Um, I've been asking for a couple of weeks now for them to. Uh, entertain that notion. And uh, last week we did sit down to discuss it. And it's encouraging because they are the party that called the meeting to sit down and talk about this. So it's obviously their interest as well as ours. Um, I would characterize that they, the meeting is that they did express an interest in finding uh, a solution and that our focus is on a program that would be the most successful, i.e. to allow the greatest number of pilots to participate if they so desired and take advantage of it. It was, a, I said, an encouraging meeting. Uh, we'll be meeting again next week on the 8th to keep that discussion uh, going. Is there any chance that that early out would really only apply to someone with an A plan? No, that was that was a key concern of ours, is that this be a broad-based uh, broad program that is designed to be available to and attract the greatest number of pilots um, who could participate, who would be eligible to participate in it. That's our perspective, I should say. Okay, good. Well, we'll look forward to seeing what that ends up looking like. So, Will, I mentioned at the top of this episode how we're, we'll be talking more about negotiations and the contract in general. And so the negotiating committee has been busy with some MOUs, and I think that we might need a little bit of clarity on those. So let's talk about that for a while. And, and starting with the cancellation of the the bid 2005 um, you know first of all we, I know we did everything we could to stop it but talk about that a little bit what does that mean exactly 
Well, as we said last week, I mean, we discussed this kind of extensively last week that when we were aware that management intended to exercise their contractual right to cancel the bid, we did everything in our power to uh, demonstrate to them that the bulk of the the costs of this bid were behind them and that only the incremental cash savings lay ahead of them. And the motives on cancellation of the bid seemed to be or were attested to be for saving cash, saving money. And uh, we did everything we could to make the business case that that was not a true statement, but uh, they exercised the, the contractual right to cancel the bid regardless. Yeah. And I, I mean, that's worth pointing out, I think, is we can point out to them, and and we did, right, Garen, that the a lot of the expense is behind us, but they they have a contractual ability to cancel any bid that they want. Yeah, that's correct. Um, the first thing I'd like to do is just express my empathy for those affected by this, and you know they each experience some level of fallout in their personal lives as a result, and you know, and this is a business decision that's allowed per the CBA the company made. Um, and many decisions are being made so rapidly, this still came as somewhat of a surprise to us. Um, you know, these types of situations and, and decisions uh, are important and they're important to all the stakeholders. And so they shouldn't be taken lightly or made in a vacuum either. Uh, they need to be carefully thought through and assessed for alignment with their long-term strategy. So <clears throat> they really should have uh, some clear thinking on what uh, all the things that are taken into consideration, especially for our people uh, long term, it should significantly outweigh whatever downline consequences arise. And, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful and I, I would like to believe that that's the case. They made these decisions with those things in mind. But um, when you look at some of the data and how quickly it was thrust, um, you know, we realize the company is scrambling to reduce their financial bleeding and nobody really truly knows how deep this thing will go and for how long. So I really do want to believe that this was indeed a necessary action for our future success. But, you know, as Will just kind of pointed out, that most of the costs for this bid were already behind us. And uh, and so I'm just concerned that it might have been a short-term immediate decision based on a, a high-level edict to, to cut costs and not really thought through the entire situation and what it means for all the stakeholders. Can you speak to... The fact that given that a lot of the costs are behind us and, and what that means, of course, is that a lot of the pilots have finished their training. In fact, some of them are actually online. Why can't the company or why can't we insist that they just allow those guys to fly in the seat position they're in now um, and you know divide it out a little bit? Well, that'd be a great thing if we could do that, David. But as you know, the, you know, the contract doesn't allow for that. A bid cancellation is a bid cancellation in its entirety. And so in order to cancel, you can't really cherry pick and decide, well, if those people have finished, then let's let them continue. Uh, like I said, a bid cancellation is just that. But it, there was a part of that that uh, that came out. We had 22 new hires also that uh, that we're looking at possibly just being let go in its entirety. Uh, and, you know, that came to a decision of what's the right thing to do here, keeping those guys on the property, especially in light of what's going on on the outside in terms of trying to find a job in this environment. Uh, do we let these guys go or can we keep them on the payroll? I, and I understand that caused some consternation among some of the guys that had to go back to their previous uh, equipment and that these guys that are the 22, that we it's the right thing to do, make no mistake, to keep these guys once we've said that you're an Alaska pilot and you are indeed an Alaska pilot. Uh, but at the same time, that potentially harms the same guys or the different guys that have to go back to a different equipment and they happen to be a little bit more senior to these 22 guys. 
But the important difference, unfortunately, uh, is that in that case, with the 22 new hires, management wanted to find a solution and was willing to to broker um, an agreement to save their jobs. And they were not, and they have not proven, I guess Garen can speak to that here in a second, as we've advocated for um, the rights of the other people affected by the bid, they've not been willing to uh, to partner in a similar fashion. You know, I think a, an impression is out there that something was done for the new hires, but we kind of left the people who had been uh, awarded that bid a, a little high and dry. Will, I, I, I know a lot of work was done with that, with, with you and Garen and the negotiating committee. Can you flesh out that that distinction? Well, I, there's a simple way to put it, which was that uh, when it came to the new hires, the company was willing to work with us to find a solution. And when it came to the other people impacted by this bid, they were not willing to work with us to find a solution uh, in the form of rolling the bid back. And as Garen alluded, um, there's really no equitable way to roll back a portion of the bid for everybody affected. But we've been advocating strongly to try and find um, a so- call it a soft landing if there is any such thing in, in how this all went down, but but trying to make sure that their rights are protected to the fullest extent um, because how this was executed was was sloppy to say the least. And anybody who's listening who is impacted can speak to that probably for a long time on each of their own personal stories. Uh, thanks, Will. I, I would like to point yeah. out on that note, the uh, the level of personal inconvenience and harm that is potentially caused for some of our pilots. I mean, I can give you some examples of some of these guys. After having been away from their families to train, some were literally told as they were walking into their maneuver valve or their SIM, LOE SIM. Others were just about to start OE, and many were told after they had already completed their training, signed off and released and acting in their new positions. Uh, and those who were changing bases, uh, the chaos it was likely causing those, you know, they're deep into their plans to sell homes and entering new leases and generally making plans to uproot their families. So it's certainly not without its pain level for all involved. And I I do hope that the company actually considered those things when making this decision. I want to really express my empathy for those folks affected. And I've been trying to reach out to each and every one of them to find out what their situation is to see if what kind of help we can provide them or at least answer the questions that they have. So if any of you guys are listening, you guys feel free to reach out to me directly. Thanks, Garen. And Garen, I know you were pretty instrumental in, in trying to educate the company on our perspective, and a lot of research was done on on the costing, right? Yeah, you know, we had some help with uh, our, some of our resources about the costing. And, you know, it just at first glance and really even right now, it didn't make a lot of sense to me to, to spend the amount of money that was spent on this training. Um, I'm, I'm not going to throw out any numbers, but it was significant and a very paltry amount just to continue the training and can, uh, and let these guys finish the bid. And I, I'm not sure what they had in mind because I wish they would have tried to partner with us to kind of help out with some of these uh, enlightening details behind the scenes as to why they made this decision. But uh, I wish they would have reached out to us to partner with us so that we could maybe offer some additional suggestions, perhaps if warranted. But um, that did not happen. So um it's frustrating to hear those stories, and I know for those affected, I'm, it's even more frustrating. Uh, but unfortunately, we can't 
pick the winners and losers. Um, but it, so happily, we could save what we could for the new hires, and we just couldn't get management to see our way with uh, maintaining the bid. You know, I just hope it's yeah. in uh, in alignment with our long term strategy for success, and not just a short term knee jerk decision to cut short term costs. Uh, it would be nice to have that kind of information to to know if that was the case. You get a lot more buy in when that kind of information is provided, or at least you're partnered with to kind of figure out these things. Right. So, Will, I know there's been some frustration among pilots about how they're being treated with the new MOU 2004. So let's talk about that. And and first, let describe, if you would, what's different. And I, for me, I think what's helpful to understand a new MOU when it comes out is to compare it to how things would have been with only the contractual language. So in this case, for example, if a trip is canceled, how would I have been dealt with under the contract? And now how am I going to be dealt with for the MOU? So can you talk about that difference? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's a a very logical question that every pilot wants to ask is why did we agree to what's here versus what was in the existing contract? And uh, absent the MOU 2004, pilots would have been handled in accordance with uh, the cancellation makeup language of the contract, which is Section 25U. Um, Specifically, there's a couple of key differences. 25U, the existing um, old contractual language, would have exposed the pilots to two contactability windows, one in the morning between 6 and 8 for a trip reporting that day, and then a subsequent one between 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. for trips that were on the following day. Uh, It also lacks any protection for hotel rooms. And we have a number of pilots, of course, who commute, and the the cancellations adversely affect everybody, but they especially affect somebody who's commuted in and then suddenly finds themselves basically a de facto reserve with no hotel room. So the key issues that, that we were trying to address, and again, the MOU 2004, these provisions apply for April only, while they don't have it, while they're trying to pull down all the flying and deal with the 70% reduction, is that there is one contactability window between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. for trips on the following day. And we do have hotel rooms provisioned. Uh, I'm not going to try to diminish any of this. I know firsthand from uh, my own household, my wife is a first officer here, how poorly these cancellations are being executed and the level of frustration that is arising, especially when we have problems with scheduling, not adhering to the conditions within the MOU that they signed. And that has been a key piece of frustration that we went to work to uh, and address with them this week, as a matter of fact. Well, yeah. And I want to highlight that point too, because that it's not part of the MOU. It's it's the, the MOU is being misapplied and that's creating a a lot of understandable frustration. So um, if you would make clear how it should be applied and what is happening to make sure that it is applied correctly in the future. Well, the specific issue that arose this week were pilots being told that they had to sit a contactable window before their original trip report time for the now canceled trip. And that has never been true, that a pilot, a bid block holder, has to be contactable prior to the report time of their trip. 
And uh, we had pilots, specifically the ones with later shows in the evenings, that were being told that they had to sit a contactable period prior to the, the showtime of that original trip. And we believe that the language on this is clear. And so we met with management to express the displeasure uh, that we've continued to receive these reports from pilots all week long. Uh, pilots telling us that they've been assigned periods of contactability prior to their original trip report times. And again, specifically for those report times after 6 p.m. Um, I would say that that conversation was a difficult one and it was somewhat emotional. Uh, management arguing a different perspective. But as of today, uh, we got about 11 a.m. an email from Jim Wellman speaking on behalf of uh, John Ladner and the, the management team saying that they do intend to adhere to the language as written. And so pilots should expect that to stop. So to be clear, bid block holders have no obligation but may optionally answer calls from scheduling prior to their scheduled report time for canceled trips. Will, if pilots are concerned about notification, what, what are a couple key points they should be keeping in mind? Well, I think if pilots are concerned about the MOU and how it's being applied in general, their first point of contact should be contract compliance. And every pilot should have that phone number readily available and give them a call and describe your situation. And that, that's how we identified the, the problem in the application of the MOU that we dealt with this week. Um, <clears throat> the other thing that I would always caution pilots with, and we've said this several times about acknowledging crew access notifications. When you log in and you see a change to your trip, there's sometimes many different things buried in that electronic notification. And we've always told people that the safest course of action is to hit ignore until you can fully understand the changes to your roster um, as the most prudent course of action. You, you don't always know what you're acknowledging. Take time to hit ignore, study the change. If you have questions, make that phone call to contract compliance and make sure that we can continue to trap and, and mitigate issues as they come up. So speaking about scheduling, Will, let's move on to what we know about the May schedule. The May schedule, what we know so far is preliminary. We got the data yesterday, this being Friday and Thursday was when we received what's known as the SIMS file. Um, we're just starting to get a look at what the May pairings might look like. And things are going to look very different in this 70% reduction of flying world. Uh, for starters, I think we're going to see obviously way fewer lines based on the block hour projections that we've seen in that SIMS file. Um, pilots need to be ready for this. It's going to be a shock to a number of, of us who are used to being line holders and will suddenly find that there's that many fewer lines. The other thing to keep in mind is that the types of trips look like they're going to be different. That's still being built, but there are some broad generalities that I think I can share based on my conversations with Scott Rubin and uh, with Jim Tedford, that if the flights can be turns, they will be. Um, they're going to largely emphasize being able to have the airplane stay with the pilot out and back. Uh, flights that are mid-cons to trans-cons might actually include an intermediary stop. So if you're headed to Raleigh-Durham, you may stop somewhere along the way, like Charleston, before you end up in Raleigh-Durham for the night. And uh, the commutability is obviously going to suffer, unfortunately, as we look at this. I, I think we're going to see fewer multi-day trips. It's just it's going to change dramatically as they, they pull this, this many um, 
options out of the solution, they really are leaving very few different ways in which you can slice that that pie. Things are going to look pretty uh, pretty much the same, and there's not much we can do to influence it. We know this is going to mean far fewer line holders, and pilots should probably be ready for way less open time. Um, in addition, I think that the company's focus on preserving cash probably means that we're going to see a lot less premium pay um, and a lot less use of staffing tools, such as allowing reserves to fly on their day off, um, which they currently do when they're short on staffing. Um, and that is at, that is at uh, scheduling's discretion rather to allow that, and I'll bet that we see an end to it. Um, with that reality, we did take the opportunity, we studied it, and then we kind of sat down to make a few expectations known to management to try and cushion some of this impact and to ensure that pilots will have maximum flexibility throughout this process. Uh, we told them that we need the largest amount of incentive lines available so that pilots will have the advantage to take, uh, take them if they'd like. And we need to have a heavy emphasis in as many long call reserve lines as possible. Uh, we've advocated that they should double and triple assign them if they need to, so that commuters don't need to commute and sit in a crash pad needlessly. Which, uh, speaking of, we on that, that issue of commutability and uh, the struggles that are emerging with it, we continue to point out to management that there are a lot of issues arising on commuting. There's definitely uh, that loss of frequency. Jump seat policies and jump seats are becoming more difficult. And the whole issue of crash pad living is just another venue of exposure for the virus. And we have asked several times that the company provide our commuters hotel rooms uh, so that they are in a less exposed environment. What's the reaction to those sorts of requests? They have them under advisement, but they're at this point in time, they've not uh, been willing to move forward with it. And then after May, what, what do things look like? Well, going forward to June, we'll keep talking with management to find ways to navigate this reduced schedule that are pro-pilot and that add flexibility, because those are the two things that we have got to try and protect in, uh, in this reduced flying environment. I know that there have been a lot of ideas floated to, uh, to some of the block reps, and there are good ideas, but for May, there's just simply no time to reach an agreement uh, with management to implement them properly. Uh, some of the ideas, just the compressed time frame, and some of the ideas touch many, many areas of the contract and the protections that we would have to ensure were written in. There's just no time to make that happen. So in addition to all this work directly related to COVID-19, we still have the normal business of the MEC and the regularly scheduled meeting took place on the first and second. Uh, I'm sorry, on, on Monday and Tuesday. So we'll Tell us uh, and Garen too. Uh, what well, Garen? I'll ask you. That was your first MEC meeting. What did What did you think? Well, I thought it was interesting, and uh, it wasn't probably your more typical meeting since most of the time, my understanding is everybody comes and sits down so that's face to face and very interactive. Uh, Scott Mokos, big plug to him because he put together the Zoom conference so that everybody could be there and be as interactive as you can be on kind of a teleconference. So, kudos to you, Scott, and. Uh, all the items that were on the agenda to take care of and the days and quarters business were taken care of. And I was impressed at the level of uh, interest and organization that was involved with it. So um, 
So I thought it was a good meeting overall. And in today's environment where everybody's going to stay at home order, I thought it worked out the best possible way it could. You know, just to point out that one thing I'm definitely learning as being a new guy here is this team is here to support the pilots in every way, to support, inform, and protect the pilot group. And I, every time I, I look uh, in a different area, I see that exact thing going on from every committee, from every officer, from every rep, and every uh, LEC. So I, I'm pretty uh, impressed with the way that thing is going. I'm still new, and, uh, you know, I'm... I'm just impressed how earnestly this group works for the pilot's behalf. And so I'm happy to be a part of it. Yeah, it's good to have you on board, Garen, that, that's for sure. Will, can you kind of recap some of the highlights of, of what occurred over the meeting? Well, certainly. We had uh, a handful of regular agenda items that happened on our um, quarterly meeting, including the election of the um, several of our committee positions and committee chairman, and then uh, – a lot of our strategic planning and briefings from key committees. So as you said, uh, it did last for two days. We we got updates from economic finance and analysis, uh, which is pretty critical right now, right, on the state of the industry, as well as Alaska's position relative to its peers. Um, we continued our discussions uh, related to negotiations, as you noted at the top of the podcast, um, just because we're currently navigating the uh, the issues with COVID-19 doesn't change our focus on the pilot's contract and ultimately the needs of the pilots, what we need to achieve. Um, we did get an update on our polling that was concluded back in uh, February, March, and uh, we continued our uh, strategic planning as well. Well, there's a lot of committees that serve the, the MEC, but only a few of them have to be elected. Which which ones are those? Well, specifically, we have to elect the members of the Retirement Insurance Committee, the Merger Committee, the Scheduling Chairman, and normally we would elect the Negotiating Committee uh, members as well. But in this case, the Negotiating Committee stays intact per policy because we're in negotiations. Well, if you could kind of summarize the meeting, what would you say the reps were focused on this this time around? Well, obviously, strategic planning and looking at the path ahead as we navigate the uh, the current uh, Corona um, virus changes that are happening daily, but also on defending our current CBA. Uh, I think there's a feeling that because there is so much in flux and so much change right now, that uh, we've lost or the management rather kind of lost focus on that bright line. And just because we're currently navigating the COVID-19 threat, it doesn't mean that our contractual rights change. And uh, they were very committed to making sure that we hold firm on that contractual bright line. Yeah, it's good to know. But, you know, one thing I would add, David, we do understand that the company's needs are changing as we work through the COVID-19 issues. And uh, just to be clear, what we expect is a conversation from the company when they they need to have a talk about uh, the best way to get through this, but not a disagree, not a disregard for the uh, the agreement that we both signed. That's our existing CBA. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, and broadly speaking, we all want the company to be successful. We all want to come out of this the other end, but we want to do so in a way that keeps us all safe and healthy. Exactly, and contractually compliant. Right. So before we close, 
Will and uh, Garen, I'll ask you both any closing thoughts or remarks. Yeah. Hey, thanks, David. I just wanted to say thanks uh, you know, to everybody out there. We know it is crazy and uncertain out there. Uh, we know that you guys are in harm's way. And, uh, and really kind of the only way to get through this is kind of as a group and taking care of each other, having each other's backs, you know, in any crisis, you know, it, it doesn't uh, create character, it reveals it. And so, and that's exactly what you guys are demonstrating out there. You're revealing your upstanding and awesome character. So again, thank you. And, uh, and I'm just pretty proud to be a part of this one hell of a team that's, uh, that's working for the pilots and to support the pilots. Thanks. Thanks, Garen. Yeah, I will jump on that comment and say that for sure, I am so proud of the pilot group and how they've responded to what has been so much change in so little time over the last several weeks. And uh, you have indeed demonstrated great character and uh, just understand how deeply empathetic we are to how this has impacted each and every one of you. Uh, we're continuing to reach out and talk with you on a daily basis. Um, but as you, you work through the uncertainty, I guess the only thing I would ask is just to make sure that people are continuing to focus on what they know, not what they don't know, and to focus on what they can control as opposed to the things that we can't control. That's how we've kind of navigated things um, together as a team uh, me, Garen, the officers, the MEC as a whole. And that's what I would encourage you to do It's uh, as we continue to move through the next few weeks. Be good to each other and be safe out there. All right. Thank you, Will. The only other thing I'd remind folks is if you have a question, contact your rep. That's what they're there for. They're educated and they want to hear from you. And also thank all of you for listening. This has been another episode of the Alaska Pilots podcast. I'm your host, Strategic Communications Chairman, Captain David Campbell. 